Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, another episode of Onco Snacks. And Josh, what would you say is the most common side effect that your patients ask you about when you're consenting them for chemotherapy or any kind of therapy? And hint to our listeners, it's in the episode title. Is it nausea? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. It's, it's hair loss. Josh has got his... Josh has got his obtuse hat on. Um, no, no, it, it's hair loss. And to be very serious, I have had patients who have refused treatment on many occasions, both men and women, because hair loss is a no-go zone. That is absolutely true. Um, and it is very true as well, Josh, that this is not just a side effect that affects women, even though in the popular mindset it probably is most associated with women. And I always associate that because the most common chemotherapy that causes the quote unquote chemo look, which is complete baldness, a complete absence of hair, is most commonly used in breast cancer. And so there's that association. But it is definitely a side effect that can affect men. And is it is definitely a side effect that men just as much as women find important, because as Josh proves, men too can have luscious locks. They, yes, they can. Like myself, I love my luscious locks. Absolutely. To kick, to kick off the episode, let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology. We'll keep it brief. We'll keep it simple. We'll keep it fast. So cytotoxic chemotherapy attacks rapidly dividing cells, which we know. And that means the hair matrix is a prime component to attack. This can result in alopecia by one of two methods. The first is if proliferation of the hair follicle matrix is severely inhibited, that leads to problems with its development. The second cause is that the hair shaft might break. But I think from an oncology perspective, you just need to know that it can actually cause some damage. Clinically, it is more prominent in the scalp with a predilection for areas of low total hair density specifically the crown, the poor men, no one likes to lose the crown of their head, and frontal areas of the scalp where there is slower hair recovery. Interestingly, and from personal or personal, from anecdotal evidence and also from our reading, loss of eyebrows. So, you know, if you want to draw on those eyebrows, it might be a little bit startled for everyone involved. And eyelashes and extremities along with axillary and pubic hair can occur. Reassuringly, the hair does grow back. Mikey, I'm worried. What chemotherapies or other agents might cause such a hideous outcome to me? Oh, there was a bit of foreshadowing in that statement, boys and girls. Did you spot it? Yes, it's not just chemotherapy that can cause it, although chemotherapy accounts for by far by far the majority, as well as the most significant incidences of alopecia. The risk, however, does substantially differ between different therapeutic agents, and a number of agents actually cause little to no alopecia. So patients will patients will associate alopecia with chemotherapy, but it's important to note that it is not always applicable. Michael, before you jump into the agents, do you want to tell me about what risk factors or things, apart from obviously the drugs themselves, that might lead to an increased incidence of hair loss? Absolutely. Well, the risk, the risk differs, and I guess unlike most of the time we talk about risk factors where it's patient factors, environmental exposures, genetic factors, that sort of thing, 
the risk factors for alopecia are mainly down to the agents. So high-dose intermittent intravenous chemotherapy agents are associated with a higher incidence of alopecia. Some targeted agents are also associated with alopecia, such as the hedgehog sni- yeah, the hedgehog signaling inhibitors and the fibroblast growth factor receptor inhibitors, both of which are fairly novel classes of agents that we are not using very commonly, but are definitely things that we'll uh, see more frequently in the future. Low-dose therapy, oral chemotherapy, and weekly intravenous regimens are less likely to induce alopecia. So it's not just the actual type of cytotoxic chemotherapy or or otherwise, but it is also the frequency. As an example, uh, in patients who have three weekly high or moderate dose cyclophosphamide, almost always, almost all of them will develop alopecia. However, oral cyclophosphamide containing regimens are much less likely to do so. Combination chemotherapy regimens are more likely to result in alopecia than agent than if those agents were given by themselves. And other factors that can contribute to alopecia include poor drug metabolism. So for patients with liver dysfunction, which unfortunately is all too common in our patients with uh, liver disease, prior exposure to scalp irradiation in our uh, small cell lung cancer patients who get prophylactic uh, cranial irradiation. Older, Older patients... Your typical older man who, as Josh said, loses the crown, the hair on the crown of his head. As well as, and this is less relevant for our patients, but our haematological colleagues have to deal with graft-versus-host disease in those patients who have undergone a, a hematopoietic cell transplant. By contrast, hair type, ethnicity and race have not been associated with variations in either the extent of alopecia or the speed or pattern of hair regrowth. And Josh, purely anecdotally, and I don't know if you've heard the same, I've heard that um, patients who have alopecia, when the hair grows back, it actually grows back thicker and longer. It really can. It can also grow back curly and a different color shade. Yes, absolutely. So I guess just just for illustrative purposes, I'll run very quickly through some of the chemotherapy agents commonly seen in medical oncology that are likely to cause severe alopecia. And these are, as we've we've mentioned, high-dose cyclophosphamide, so intravenous are greater than 300 milligrams per meter squared. Taxanes are notorious, doxorubicin, epirubicin, aribulin, etoposide, ifosfamide, irinotecan, and paclitaxel. And Josh, as you might Note, the majority of those are used in breast cancer, bringing us back to the original point. Apart from which one, Michael? Irinotecan. Used for? Bowel cancer. Very good. Among other things. Among Among, among other things. It's quite quite commonly used elsewhere as well. Uh, In terms of, as Josh mentioned at the start of this little section, chemotherapy are not the only offenders, although they're by far the most common. However... Molecular agents, such as monoclonal antibodies against EGFR, can cause diffuse or partial alopecia. It's usually, it's not usually the stereotypical chemotherapy look, uh, but it is frequently noticeable. Uh, 
Reversible alopecia is also described in patients receiving treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, such as serafinib, regorafenib, cabazantinib, all of those nibs that you encounter in the uh, hepatocellular or renal cell space. They can also... Uh, they can also cause reversible partial alopecia. Again, not quite to the same degree. Michael, you forgot about just a couple of small things if I might interject. Of course. They might include antibody drug conjugates, which I guess are a form of chemotherapy a lot of the time. Tamoxifen also causes some hair thinning and immunotherapy that can cause between 1% to 2% of hair thinning as well. I guess immunotherapy itself doesn't cause it but when it probably attacks the hair follicle that's me hedging my pathophysiology backbone and understanding of the immune system that's when it causes some hair loss yeah and as we know immunotherapy or as we know immune mediated side effects can really present however they want so Josh, that's sort of alopecia in a nutshell. Those are some of the agents that can cause it most frequently. But what do we do about it? You counsel. I think that's the first thing because even with the treatments, preventative or trying to stop it, people can still still lose their hair, but it will always grow back. And this is where the art of oncology comes in to convince someone to have treatment they don't want to, so that they can understand that when they get out the other end, they'll probably have something absolutely wonderful. There are some options available and, you know, they're not always efficacious and not every health service offers it. But I think scalp hypothermia, also known as scalp cooling, is probably the standard of care for most people. And it can be offered in patients with a variety of solid tumors receiving bolus or short-term infusional chemotherapy with a moderate to high risk of alopecia. The evidence is most robust in those with breast cancer, however, can also be used with other solid cancers with a high risk of complete alopecia, including ovarian and prostate cancer. But Josh, have you actually seen that? Because I've only seen scalp cooling with breast cancer. Only with breast cancer in my patients. Maybe it's because the cohort of patients who might lose their hair, so in the prostate section with the chemotherapy or ovarian, they might have other things that they're worrying about. Um, I don't know if it's a psychology component to it. Um, but yes, very, I don't know if it's a psychology component, but I've rarely seen it offered, but again, I've never actually asked that, but again, there have not been many men that I've come across who are so desperate that they want to keep their hair, although it has happened. And so I, it's something that's probably worthwhile asking and then looking up that specific agent because it doesn't work for all agents. With scalp cooling, though, it's not 100% effective. So in preventing alopecia in the combination of anthracyclines and cyclophosphamide, which is the breast cancer paradigm, it was modest with up to 60% of patients still experiencing grade 2, which is greater than 50% hair loss alopecia. By contrast, the majority of patients with taxanes alone for breast cancer will retain most of their hair greater than 60% receiving taxanes reported no worse than grade one alopecia. Success, I think, also is impacted on the experience, the cap fit, the hair type and the thickness and the likely issues related to drug exposure and clearance. And of course, you can't forget the financial burden and the side effects of the actual 
treatment, like the cold intolerance and the headaches and the forehead pain and the lightheadedness. And I feel that a lot of these patients already go through enough to try and preserve hair that might end up falling out anyway. Michael, that's probably scalp cooling and it's something that does need to be offered to our patients. But are there any systemic options, tablets, patches, I don't know, injections that might help us? Not for prevention. And I guess that's the thing with scalp cooling that you sort of emphasized is that scalp cooling is for prevention. It's given during and before and during chemotherapy with a with a focus on preservation of the hair follicles. However, the systemic options or the topical options are really for patients who have delayed recovery because the evidence is that they're not really good as preventative agents. So the main one is minoxidil, um, which can be trialed in either an oral or topical formulation for patients with chemotherapy-induced alopecia or alopecia related to endocrine therapy to stimulate recovery of the... um, to stimulate recovery and regrowth of the hair follicles. Aside from that, though, there's not really much else. There have been studies on uh, bimatoprost, spironolactone, topical calcitriol, but there's not really much else in the way of evidence uh, to support the um, use of topical or systemic agents in the pre- certainly in the preventative space for uh, prevention of alopecia. Which is a bit of a shame, I think. But again, most of our patients hopefully recover from the cancer and as an added benefit, they will get their hair mostly back with a slight variation. Absolutely. That's our 15 minutes, so I think we should uh, wrap it up there. Join us next time on Onco Snacks, where we will be talking about... Where we will be talking about immune-mediated thyroid issues with our special guest, endocrinologist extraordinaire, Dahlia Davidoff. So we hope to see you then. Can't wait. And it will not be a hairy situation at all. Ah, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll leave you with that terrible-tasting bun. (laughs) Bye.